0: From the Center for Western Priorities, this is The Landscape, your show about the outdoors and America's public lands. I'm Kate Gretzinger in Bluff, Utah.
1: I'm Aaron Weiss in Denver, getting over a cold here, so I'm going to let Kate do most of the talking this week.
0: On the show today, we're looking at how private land conservation can be part of the 30 by 30 solution. It's a conversation with cattle rancher and conservation leader Jay Fetcher.
1: A couple of us from the CWP team took a trip out to the Fetcher Ranch near Steamboat Springs, where Jay showed us around his family cattle operation. But the ranch is more than that. It is protected in perpetuity. It hosts a reading camp for kids and gravel bike races, not to mention riparian areas and sandhill cranes. I think you're going to find this a really fascinating interview.
0: But first, let's do the news. The Biden administration is reversing an 11th hour attempt by the Trump administration to gut protections for the northern spotted owl. On his way out the door, Interior Secretary David Bernhardt drastically shrunk the critical habitat for the owl, which would have opened up millions of acres for logging in the Pacific Northwest. But documents shared with the Associated Press show that government scientists warned Bernhardt that shrinking the protected areas would put the spotted owl on a path to extinction. Bernhardt simply ignored the science, which is why the Fish and Wildlife Service reversed Bernhardt's action this week, restoring the owl's critical habitat. There's also good news along the California coast, where the Commerce Department started the process to protect a new marine sanctuary, the Shumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary. This is a proposal led by the Shumash tribes, which have been stewards of the area for thousands of years. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, kicked off a public comment period on the proposal, which is the first step toward a formal declaration. It would also be one of the first major land protections under the Biden administration toward the 30 by 30 goal of protecting 30 percent of America's lands and waters by the end of the decade.
1: Chumash Heritage is one of the areas that we are focusing on in an upcoming series of videos that we're kicking off next week. We're calling them Road to 30 Postcards, snapshots of areas in need of protection from development or oil drilling, One of the most important things to remember about 30 by 30 is that it is going to take every tool available to protect that much land and water that quickly.
0: In the case of Chumash Heritage, it's a marine sanctuary designation by the Commerce Department. In some other areas, it could be a national monument designated by the president or a new national park protected by Congress. And there's no way to get to 30 by 30 without the help of private landowners. And that's where our conversation with Jay Fetcher comes in.
1: So the Fetcher Ranch was a finalist for the prestigious Colorado Leopold Conservation Award this year. You will hear Jay explain how his father and uncle built the ranch back in the 40s and 50s. They helped develop the steamboat ski area into what it is today. And the ranch, which is actually two properties uh, about 10 miles apart, it's now permanently protected under conservation easements. Jay has been a leader in getting Colorado cattle ranches into easements, which, as you will hear, keep the land from getting turned into condos or golf courses, while also providing wildlife habitat and still remaining as a working cattle operation. So last month, I took my camera out to Fetcher Ranch, along with our CWP colleague, Lauren Bogard, who you'll also hear during this interview, Jay showed us around both properties. I took a bunch of pictures, which you'll see in the show notes, and then Lauren and I sat down with Jay to talk about the past, present, and future of ranching and conservation in the mountains. Jay, thank you so much for having us out here. Uh, It is a gorgeous first day of fall, and uh, we've, we've done podcasts with live audiences before, but never one with a live audience of cattle. Uh, so I, I really appreciate that. Take us back. Your family has been out here for, for quite a while. Yeah. Give it, give us the history of your family and and this land.
2: Aaron, thank you. Um, as I learned to appreciate this, it's remarkable history because my dad was born and raised in Chicago. He went to Harvard uh, my mom was uh, raised in Plainfield, New Jersey, went to Smith College. They met. My, my dad actually spent some time in Paris uh, from 1934 to 1938 before he came home. Uh, worked for a company in Philadelphia called the Bud Company. They made Vista Dome railroad cars, among other things. He loved to build stuff with his hands. Why we ended up here, this is my theory. I felt like he was being asked to move off the floor into management and he wanted to build stuff with his hands. So in 1949, May of 1949, he said, I'm going to be a rancher. He didn't know which end of a cow got up first. He knew nothing He spent that summer of 49 shopping for ranches in the West. Uh, Gunnison, Colorado, Saratoga, Wyoming, some places in Montana. Ended up buying this ranch in August of 1949. I think one of the draws here was the Hollison Hill Ski Area because he was an avid skier and Hollison is the oldest continuing operating ski area in the country, a uh, small city-owned ski area. We arrived here in October 30th, 1949. Got a picture of us driving over Rabbit Ears Pass. I was two years old with the Woody Station Wagon uh-huh. pulling a trailer with Two beehives on the back of the trailer because he was a beekeeper in Philadelphia, and there, there's a picture of us on the top of Rabbiters Pass with those um, bees <coughs> and all of our stuff. Um, my uncle was a partner with him and came out as well. They, he was ready to change jobs too. This place, there was nothing here. There was the the original barn their original homestead house, the bunkhouse, which was actually a chicken coop at that Mm. point. No corrals, no fences, nothing. Um, They bought their first bunch of cattle, Can have pictures of them being unloaded with no corrals, have pictures of them being processed, running through the barn. Incredible what they did. And as I always say, my mom's the hero of this story. Because here she is plunked from Philadelphia to Clark, Colorado, with three little boys under five years of age, and she's amazing watch she, how she how she did it and
1: loved it so there's there was a homestead here going back turn of the century yes um, the original homestead um
2: Patton was in nine or eighteen ninety two
1: So your family starts ranching. Your dad and uncle obviously figure out the cattle business. Uh, And then somewhere along the way, they decide to also start developing the ski area here. My dad, because of his
2: engineering background, he'd engineered the ranch a lot. He'd leveled. Uh, improve the irrigation system, let, um, work the, hay, the, the meadows to make more production from, for hay from them, did some rebuilding and reworking of the, the existing buildings. But he was, he was a builder, he was an engineer. And so he was asked by Jim Temple, who was a visionary for the uh, Steamboat Spring ski area, to to join him, which he did. I do think there was, he wanted to scratch that engineering itch by building ski lifts, which he got involved, got involved both physically and financially, because our farm tractors were taken to town to put up ski lifts. We've got movies of of this, of the tractors there making cement and building, putting up towers and all that stuff. So he looked at the ski area as an engineering challenge, not so much as a uh, asset to the town of Steamboat.
1: So you took over operations
2: here when? I took over, um, I was graduated from high school and Steamboat High School in 1965, went to the University of Wyoming, um, majored in animal science. We had a Turnover over an employee in kind of ranch foreman in 1968 so even though I hadn't graduated I was the one that kind of started making decisions 1968 I graduated from Wyoming in 69 came back and took over full time management at that point and truthfully Aaron very lucky because my dad was so involved in building this in the mountain building the ski area that I didn't have this patriarch looking over my shoulder, second-guessing my um, decisions that I wanted to do here on the ranch, whether it's crossbreeding cows, changing breeds, different haying operations. So um, I consider myself fortunate in that regard because so many of my peers, they come back to the ranch, and Dad is saying, no, you can't do it that way. we never done it that way. You can't do it that way. And so I was, in, in a sense, lucky that he was so
1: involved there. So then take us forward to conservation and where you had a... a, a if, was there a moment of recognition where you realized that ranching and conserving the land were going to have to go hand in hand in order to make it work?
2: Um, we looked at land values that were caused by the development in Steamboat. And again, after part of that answer is my dad was quoted in the Denver Post by saying, we created a monster, meaning the ski area of what it did to ranching here. Because all of a sudden the values shot up. That were unmanageable from a state tax reason. Um, back in uh, the early '90s, the, the state tax exemption was $600,000. If my dad had died, we were out of. We'd have to sell um, three quarters of this ranch because
1: everything above $600,000 was taxed, taxed at
2: 45 percent, a... and we'd have to sell the ranch to to pay off that tax. So we looked at alternatives. We also worked with our the other five major landowners in the Upper Oak River Valley, came up with a plan and an understanding of what each landowner wanted. Um, some wanted to preserve all their land. Some wanted to uh, have some development rights, but it wouldn't be intrusive on the other landowners. So we came up with the Elk, Upper Elk River Plan, of which it wasn't something that we signed. It was just kind of this concept of how we wanted to the valley to look. Um, part of the tool for that was conservation easements. So we started exploring land trusts that we could work with. Um, Nature Conservancy was one. Um, we chose to work with American Farmland Trust based in Washington, D.C., because they're more agriculturally friendly than some of the others. Um, we did an easement on this ranch, giving away of the approximately 20, 35-acre development rights. We gave away all but two of those. In other words, there was a donation to the American Farmland Trust for that we, <clears throat> we received a, a federal terrib- um, federal charitable contribution from the IRS which didn't mean much cuz there's no money made in ranching to op- use that top set so we wrote an easement with the, them signed it in 1994 out of that grew um, and, and the other land, the other four of the other five landowners up here also did easements within the, uh, within about a five to six year period. So the Upper Elk River plan worked.
3: Jay, I understand we're at a historic location and that this is where the Colorado Cattlemen's Agricultural Land Trust started 25 years ago. And I wonder if you could tell us about why you felt that needed to come into existence and How, what your hopes were, and how you feel about it now, 25 years later?
2: After we did the easement, we felt really good about it. And, but part of the working with American Farmland Trust, because they're more of a policy group than a preservation group, meaning that they use their position in Washington to lobby for land preservation policy. So they asked me to go around to various groups and talk about why Upper Elk River Plan happened. And so the first group I talked to was the Land Trust Alliance, which is the umbrella group for all the land trusts in the in the country. And I was so happy that we found American Farmland Trust because a lot of the small land trusts, controlled how tall the fences could be, how short the grass could be grazed, and I said this wouldn't work for agriculture, it wouldn't work for the Fetcher Ranch. The next place I went was um, National Cattlemen's Association meeting, and discovered that they had a policy totally opposing conservation easements. Again, I said, you know, this tool works for the Fetcher family, why won't it work for others? So I approached the Colorado Cattlemen Association board and said, what about forming a land trust under the auspices of CCA? Very, very fortunate to have uh, Reeves Brown, who was executive director at that point of CCA, totally got it got it, and was a strong advocate of forming the land trust. The president, again, was a very good friend of mine named Kurt Hanna. And he, again, said, we've got to do this. But it took a year. There was a lot of negative pushback, saying it's a government plot to take your land. (laughs) But in uh, March, or no, September of 1995, we were blessed by CCA. And at that point, I said, well, this is good. You know, we'll maybe do five 15 easements total, but we're going to do a lot of education of ranch families in terms of understanding, um, the generational transition part of, of this business had no idea that 25 years later, we'd have over 675,000 acres working with over 300 ranch families around the state under easement. And, um, it's remarkable truthfully at this point so
1: with that much land in trust now that many families and family ranches involved now what would what would ranching look like what would those farms look like without a land trust being involved given what's happening with property values in, around here and a whole lot of rest of the state
2: um I have to begin by saying that we these landowners we're not developers and so we wouldn't be the ones that would put a golf course out in this meadow but would there be pressure for us to sell out so somebody else could? Yes Uh, so sending the message that this land is preserved forever takes that pressure off it also, uh, initially, like I said, in 1994, we got no financial benefit. Colorado was very leading edge in, in the late, uh, in the mid-2000s passing legislation that the first piece was allowed for that conservation easement donation to be considered a Colorado tax credit for against Colorado taxes, The the remarkable part that came later was that we as landowners could then sell that tax credit to a taxpayer that had an obligation. Uh, And all of a sudden I got a check for doing a conservation easement. We got a check for doing, for protecting the land for the rest of the state forever. And that was remarkable. And we were able to do... um, some improvements here on the ranch. One of my best stories is my daughter uh, and her husband wanted to move back to the ranch and live in the house that she grew up in. And and after they did that, she called me and said, Dad, I feel like I'm driving to a house, not a home. And I said, here's some easement money, make it your home. So they were able to um, remodel the house and make it so that it's their home.
1: And and without that writ large, not necessarily just this property, but this valley that we are in right now, given its proximity to Steamboat, yeah. is there a good chance it would just be be condos at this point? Or a golf course or a resort or whatever?
2: Um I don't think there's enough pressure that there would be that many golf courses <laughs> between here and Steamboat. <laughs> but there would definitely be pressure on the landowners to do something different with it than put up hay and raise cows. And, and, you know, when we learned about and started talking about easements in 94, my dad was there like that. He said, I want this ranch to be protected. It wasn't, it was, it came from here. It didn't come from the state tax threat. um, and, you know, my story with him um, is that he was very involved in water and throughout the state. He um, was considered one of the water buffaloes. He attended the Water Congress and was always, everybody bowed down to him. And so I was, I took him to a water congress in 2009 in Denver and we came home and he got up the next morning and went to work at the water district and he's 97 years old he came home early which he never does and Molly and Jonah were living, my daughter and son-in-law were living in the house above him and they went and checked on him and he was feeling poorly uh, Jonah called EMTs uh, to come up and see him. He said, no, no, I'm fine. But they took him to the hospital, and he had pneumonia. Here he is, 97 years old, with pneumonia. Um, so I go see him Wednesday, I talk with the doctors, uh, and he's on oxygen and medication and and struggling to breathe. And and so then Friday I consult with the doctors, and the doctor said, you know, he's going to be on oxygen when he goes home, he may have to go to assisted living for a while, but he's going to be in oxygen even when he goes home. And so I tell him, I said, the doctor's saying, you're going to be in oxygen the rest of your life. He said, that means no more ranching, doesn't it? He takes his mask off and he dies in an hour. Oh my. That's what this place means to him. And that's what it means to us.
3: I just have to let that sink in it's, for a it's second. Remarkable. That,
2: That's, and you know, we are so lucky because of that. Because he needed to be here. And he, he if he couldn't do it his way, he wasn't going to do it.
1: When you look then at what your family has built here, what the other families here in in this valley have built and then you look to to what happens next uh, as families try to figure out will their kids take over? will your kids take over? W- what happens in a case when the next generation says this has been wonderful but it's not for me, it's not my path with with the conservation easements in place, what does that mean? For the future?
2: We think about that a lot and we have really good family conversations, and we're so lucky because we can talk to each other. We can share those thoughts. My siblings who don't live here absolutely love this place, but they don't want to come fix fence. Their kids love it, but again, don't necessarily want to come fix fence. My daughter and son-in-law are here on the ranch now. Their kids are involved in school in town, and so they're saying, why can't we live in town, you know, where, where all our friends are? But then they come out here, and they're in joy. They're, ju- they're just... Joey runs around barefoot all year round, all winter long, he's <laughs> barefoot out in the <laughs> snow. <laughs> and, you know, he wants... he And the other two... You know it's they're fifteen and thirteen, so it's harder right now So they want to be in town, but then when their friends come out here, their friends are just in heaven, and so they have to they're learning and and I raising my three daughters here was the same thing you know they wanted to be in town, but when their friends came out here, their friends were having so much fun. so what happens next? Um, obviously, the conservation easement stays in in place in perpetuity, so Nobody can put a golf course in this meadow. It doesn't mean it has to be hate, because that's a goal we had when we started the Cattleman's Land Trust. You it just has to be protected, it doesn't have to be maintained and it doesn't have to be used agriculturally. You can just let the grass grow if you if that landowner so chooses. We probably will continue to own it. Each you know, we had discussions this summer. Okay, of the three assets that are here—Hunt's Peak Ranch, Clark Ranch, house in town—what's your favorite? Most everybody said this place. I I have very strong feelings about the Hunt's Peak place, particularly this time of year. You know, if if we sell one of them, it would probably be the Hunt's Peak place. But again, it can't be developed because it's under an easement. There could be a house what. Two houses built up there, and they'd be mansions, admittedly, because that's who the landowner would be. But, Aaron, back to your question, I think if no family member wants to run cows here, we have two choices. We hire the right manager, and Liz could be that, who is very talented in what she does here. And she is hired to take over, and I do less. Um or the other thing is we lease it to a young dynamic um agricultural rancher, and we keep owning it and that's that's a positive to me because they're, they're local um, local families here whose kids grew up here and they want to stay here and they want to ranch, but the the property doesn't allow them to buy property to run their own place so leasing is is a comfortable option down the road
1: and it seems like from the the folks that are doing that both on the leasing side and on the the ownership side that that is working in a number of places financially yes you know
2: they they work hard they care for the land those leasees and we i i think the if I have a angst about that, it's my 60-plus years of genetics into those animals. And would the leasee want to lease my cows, or does he want to say, no, I want to start over? That's a little bit of angst, but I can get over that.
3: <laughs> There's something else you mentioned that I want to talk about. And I'll first I'll reference that this morning we've seen deer, we've yeah. seen elk, we saw a marmot in addition to your cattle and, and horses. And so maybe if you could talk to us about how the future could incorporate some of those benefits. What is your hope in that regard?
2: Lauren, I have too many elk on this ranch. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Not what I thought you might say.
2: <laughs> uh, and it's making it more of a challenge to run the ranch with the cows because the elk don't know how to, they'll, they'll jump the fence, but when there's 50 of them, somebody's going to miss. And so they break the fences and they, it's, it's more of a challenge than it used to be growing up. I never saw an elk, never. And part of it is the, is the recreational activity that's going on in the neighboring Mountains that the elk say, you know, it's so comfortable down on Fetcher Ranch. I've got really good grass and water, and nobody bothers me. So we are going to have to adapt our—, our I, I do believe we're going to have to adapt some of our cattle management to that impact. Um, whether we cut back numbers and DPW pays me for grazing their elk— <laughs> which is not going to happen. Um but it it is it is important for us to have, be wildlife friendly. Uh in the meadow behind you again all summer long there's 20 head of elk there all summer long raising their babies. It's really c- gorgeous sight. And it doesn't truthfully impact the production that much, but it's just it's just change up here. You know, I think the next adaptation we're going to have to make is the wolf issue, <clears throat> how that affects the cattle operation. I'm not that concerned about predation because I think we can get compensated by whining and up for compensation. But I think the additional management that is placed on the help is going to be a bigger issue with the wolves.
1: What does that mean in terms of additional management?
2: Just... Our cattle, as you saw, are very calm. They're easy to move with a mountain bike, on foot, with a with an ATV. And, but I do think if the wolves are in in imaged in them, they're going to be much harder to handle. They're going to be wilder. They're not going to stay where they belong as easily as they do now. It's just I think it's going to be change our. We might have to hire two more people just to manage cows and keep them where they belong.
1: We talked to Dan Gibbs a couple months ago and asked him about about wolves and Colorado voters voted to to approve wolf reintroduction. And and separate from that, they are coming into the state on their own from down from Wyoming. How will this process play out? What is what is an ideal process look like from the perspective of? ranchers out here who were, by and large, uh, opposed to to bringing wolves back?
2: Uh, I would go even further.
1: The West Slope was opposed.
2: And that's where the ballot initiative said the wolves are going to be introduced. I don't know what happens when one wanders into Boulder. He's breaking the law. You know, and I, I did question in my mind, since there's a a legitimate pack in North Park with puppies, okay, should we try to run a ballot initiative that says, okay, their wolves are here, we don't need to reintroduce them, let's continue to support migration, which I'm very comfortable with. Um, but where are they going to be introduced? You know, Wyoming has 500,000 people Colorado's 3.5 million people. What's what's? There's a huge difference in that. And Wyoming has these huge blocks of public land where the wolves can be. Where we have, you know, we have Rocky Mountain National Park, but that's not nearly big enough to support them. Um, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I I like I said. Uh, What's it going to do to recreation? What's it going to do to hunting? Um, which is an important part of Colorado's economics. Um, I don't know.
3: How do you feel when you're out here every day? What, how do you feel being on the ranch, having this be your, your every day?
2: Every day out here, I look for and find moments of awe. And I have a... Special places here that I like to go to. We were at Hans Peak this morning, and that there's lots of awe uh, moments up there. But up this valley here, we call McFeedra, is a meadow, and that's where all the a lot of elk are. But I was up there a couple years ago, and not having to do anything, it was, it was a want to, not a have to day. I was up irrigating, which I love to do. And the first thing I came across was with our, my, our old dog, and she found a fawn sleeping in the grass, and they just said hi to each other. And the next thing, um, within five minutes, I hear an elk calling for her baby calf across the valley, and this, this mewing noise. And then I'm up at the irrigation ditch, was at the top of this hill behind us. And, I say, and the irrigation right for that is 1905. So that pioneer guy says, I want to irrigate this hill. So he starts walking up to where he can divert it out of the creek by gravity, five miles. And then he go gets his mule and his shovel, and he digs the ditch.
1: Five miles long. Yeah.
2: So within five minutes, I had these three incredible moments of awe. And that's what this place does. And it does it for family. It does it for visitors. And I think that's why we have been so open to sharing this place with a, a huge variety of individuals from... Rocky Mountain Youth Corps to bicycle race to groups for over 70 years we've shared this place because of
1: that. We're going to get back to water because obviously that is the elephant in the room when you're talking about climate change and ranching in Colorado but 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 I I I, I want to ask more about what's going on up the the Hunt's Peak property and and some of the uses that conservation easements have allowed because you do have the the camping and the programs and things going on up there how did how did those come about and and what kind of things are are happening there um as i
2: just said it's very important that we share this whether it's allowing fishing hunting those opportunities for someone to appreciate what we do two examples are the the Book Trails Camp up at our Hunts Peak Ranch. And this young woman came to us about 10 years ago and said, you know, I want to start a camp for kids. I want them to get outside and walk around, sit under a tree and read a book. I want them to appreciate what nature is doing as well as improving your reading skills. So she started that and she'd t- bring kids here and they'd walk up the McPhee Draw again, this place where... I had those moments of awe. And then she said, you know, this camp is growing. Can we use your Haunts Peak barn, which we, she started doing and having camps there? And then that grew into, well, we want a more permanent off-the-road site. And I said, well, we have this old homestead cabin um, that is part—that is actually exempted out of the easement so that it can be developed— and she said um you know that would work so she went up and <clears throat> and built tent platforms up there and now runs 2 to 300 kids through that camp every all summer long and it's it's the best sight in the world to go up there and see these kids running around happy camping exploring learning about wildlife learning about the the forest and then they go home and share it. And, you know, it's, they're, they're learning how important the environment is. And they're, they're going to support it from now on. The other adventure, which this was our second summer with it, was um, the Steamboat Gravel Race. These are avid bicyclists that have gravel uh, bikes. And they want to do these long treks. And, and so we worked with, with the organizer there, Amy Charity. You know, I said, do you want to ride through the cow pasture at Haunt's Peak? And she said, well, let's go look. And we did. And we did. And she said, absolutely, this will be the best. And so they came through from Steamboat. It was 140 miles, I think, 1,500 bikers came riding up, came through the ranch here. We sent them up through the hay meadow. We sent them up to Hans Peak. We sent them through a cow pasture up there, and hopefully they got a little manure on their tires (laughs) and up their back. And and then they came back out by uh, the cabin we showed you and back down this way, came back the way we came, and out back on 129, and... um, as they were riding out here, you know they were spread out pretty far. Some our neighbors' horses got loose and were running down the road the opposite <laughs> way, it was a great sight. Um, but as they were coming through, you know the guys in front were <clears throat> and women were at you know they wanted to get there. But most of them would stop and chat, and chat and say, "What do you do here? This is gorgeous. how How come you're so willing to share this with us?" And that is so important, so important.
1: You grow all of your own hay here for your cattle. Yes. You don't yes. You don't bring in hay. We were talking earlier about how the, one of the reasons you can do that is because it has been a very predictable location in terms of climate, moisture. You know how much you're going to grow any given year. Is that starting to change now with, with climate change? And how is that affecting ranching up and down this valley yes it's changed
2: um we're on the elk river the elk river starts in the circle wilderness and is about 40 miles long ends up in the yampa just a little bit west of steamboat elk river is known because it runs more water for its length than any river in the united states that makes um it fairly easy to get water to irrigate these meadows but it's becoming more of a challenge Uh, two years ago I was lazy in irrigating because I said it's just going to be the same as always we're going to get those June rains and and that guy gets the high spots better than I do uh, in terms of irrigating Um, so our hay crop last year was was down considerably and we reduced the cow numbers because of that we do have, um, and I used to pick on my dad for buying this ranch because of the challenge from the, the seasonal challenge we had. And then I discovered, you know, we have the most stable agricultural environment in the state because because every year we get this much snow and every year we get this much grass. So it makes the management of the ranch predictable. It's as I say, I deal with when, not if. So I know I have to feed cows from May or from November to May every year, and that that's so we plan on the amount of hay based. We plan on the amount of cows based on the amount of hay. This year, a hay crop was almost up to average. One thing I've done over 70 years, my dad did it before, is kept track of what I call snow off the meadow. So it's when this meadow out here bears off in the spring and the date. And that data is amazing how the change has been. Um, The biggest change, the slight change, is the, the average date has moved up about 12 days in April. But the biggest change is the variability between the, when the snow is gone in the spring, and and it's gone much earlier in the spring. So um,
1: that's been fun data to play with. So you are you've been involved in progressive politics in Colorado for for quite some time. You made a couple runs for for state office. This is overall a pretty conservative area politically most of your neighbors i assume are are fairly fairly conservative so when you look at how the climate is changing and you talk to your neighbors what do what are those conversations like about what do we do about this um i must admit i don't
2: talk to my neighbors (laughs) you know i i I know to the west of here, they're really challenged because of the climate change. Our our immediate neighbors here um, have an operation in Maybell, Colorado, and another operation in Vernal, Utah. So they bring all their animals up here in the summer. But they're, you know, they're relying on public lands out there too. And the BLM is saying, you just can't run all these sheep out here anymore. It's to, there's, you know, we have to protect the resource. So it puts a lot of economic pressure on them when they have to be, when they're forced to cut down. And like I said, because of our pretty stable environment here, we're able to maintain the animals we have. Um, year in and year out where they're up and down all the time in terms of how many animals they have whether they have to go buy hay whether they have to ship them out somewhere else I, again it's just you know in the old days I cussed my dad for buying this ranch but now it's a blessing it's a real blessing and and the Elk River we have the third water right on it so we have plenty of water for irrigating we don't have to um do any, uh, it's all done with gravity, which is cheap. It's a lot cheaper in electricity. Uh, it creates this incredible ru- uh, riparian zone that you see because of the, the, the sub-irrigating that goes on. I think the other thing is when I spread water on these meadows, I can't get every spot the same amount of water. So it creates a different... Uh, ecosystem out in that meadow and that draws different insects, different birds, different wildlife, because it's not a monoculture out there in that hay meadow.
3: You mentioned there can be challenges working with federal partners as a, as a private landowner with, with animals. And, and this morning you also shared that you have a grazing permit in the national forest, can you tell us about some of the challenges mm. there? And
2: yeah, our Hunts Peak Ranch, which is about a thousand feet higher than here, um, was predominantly lodgepole. And there's about 700 acres up there. And when the when the pine beetle epidemic hit in 2002, those trees were all killed. Within two years, we were able to go in with loggers, private loggers, cut those trees, and it actually, at that point, we got paid for that because there's was a demand for lumber. And, you know, initially it was this wonderful lodgepole forest and having it all die broke my heart. But now, you know, almost 20 years later, it's exciting to see the change in the growth of the trees. But... Adjoining that Hans Peak Ranch is a national forest permit where we run about 80 cows from uh, July 1st, September 1st. To try to get the Forest Service across the fence to manage their, their forest is impossible. And it's a challenge for us to use that forest permit the way we have because of the down trees and the, the fences or the trees falling across the fences constant repair of fences, the um, inability of the cows to move around on that forest permit the way they used to because of all the down trees. The um, forest ranger has actually been very nice to us because they could insist, well, you're not distributing the cows the way you should, spreading them out on the, on the forest the way you should. So they've been Tolerant, at least, of that. But it'd be so wonderful if we could ease the the government red tape, so we can get at least along kind of the boundary to clean up the forest permit the the dead trees.
1: What's the challenge there? Is it is it getting enough science? Is it just getting enough bodies to look at it? what when you say red tape? What is yeah. what does that actually look like on the ground?
2: You know, it's uh, uh, environmental impact statements on federal lands. Uh, it's a part of it. They have to go in and oh, do we really is this, what's this going to do to us? And you know, if we get, and and truthfully, the local forest people are good to work with, and they would like to be there tomorrow. And when we were logging our, our private lands, they said, you know, we, we hopefully could get a special permit to allow that guy just to jump across the fence and just do a swath along the fence, but it just never could happen. Our state Colorado State forest, forester here, John Twitchell, is amazing in terms of helping us private landowners get this work done and he, he's, re- he's pretty connected trying to get the state, the federal government involved. Uh, Michael Bennett is is very much pushing for this, trying to get money in local pockets to get it done and to ease the permit process. He was here a couple of weeks ago, and we had a really good conversation about his efforts in terms of getting local work done on 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 the forest and then truthfully not on our private land up there because all the dead trees are cut but on the national forest just to the west there's a it's going to catch on fire soon it is they're all dead and they're all you know the light right lightning strike in the right place all summer long right over the ridge here was the morgan creek fire that burned forever and we were full of smoke all summer
1: Let's talk about water real quick, and then we're going to get back to 30 by 30. Obviously, as part of climate change and the drought that we're all experiencing, it's making everyone reconsider how much water there is to go around. There's wide recognition that the Colorado River Compact that governs all of the states in the, in the Colorado River, that there, there is simply more water allocated than there is in the river. You're sitting here in a pretty nice position because you're, the the water rights here are, are fairly senior, but obviously you're seeing that pressure elsewhere. Yes. What What do you think the solution is? Is it, can we fix this by nibbling around the edges? Is it just someone coming in with a pot of money and buying out a whole lot of water rights, or do we need to rethink this entire system top to bottom?
2: Oh, my gosh. <laughs>
1: And, and this does get back to the, you know, whiskeys for drinking, waters yeah. for fighting. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, the example
2: and the challenge that we're facing here is this meadow behind you, 20 acres, puts up two and a half, three tons of hay per acre. So 60 tons of hay valued at $100 a ton, this meadow will produce $6,000 of, of hay for the ranch that's fed to the cows. The same amount of water that <clears throat> that raises that hay would take care of 4,000 people for a year. Mm. How do I justify using that water to irrigate this meadow for that little when they're thirsty people on the front range? Maybe they're not thirsty, but they're wanting their golf course green. How, how do we how do I justify that and again we in agriculture need to work harder and it goes back to the 30 for 30 stuff is selling what people get a chance to look at when they drive up the uh, Elk River Road and look at the, riparian, the healthy riparian zone because of flood irrigation and but we're, we're, we're bad messengers in agriculture we just want to Hide away and and not not work on that message. So I don't know. Uh, you know, one of my favorite uh, books is uh, Silver Hawk, Silver Fox of the Rockies, written by Dan Tyler about the 1922 River Compact. A remarkable story. I don't know if you've read it, but it's uh, about Dolph Carpenter and negotiating that. And you know, he. He worked hard to get a, con- a contract between the two, between the upper and lower basin states, and instead of based on percentage, it's based on cubic feet. And so now we have to deliver cubic feet instead of a percentage of the, of the basin water. You know, there's talk about bringing that up, but it would be a disaster to open that 8- 1922 compact up
1: we've been talking about 30 by 30 here these last couple days and w- when we we got into town you had some some questions for for us about what what is it what does it mean what what does protection mean and i, I certainly have my answers but i i, I want to hear that from you when you hear 30 by 30 is about protecting land what do you what does protection mean to you and what do you think protected means going forward for the next 50 or 100 years when you look out at this valley?
2: Uh, Challenging question because when I hear protecting 30 percent of the land and water by the year 3030, I say protecting from what? And is it protecting from development is it protecting what's it uh, what are we protecting it from the you know the National Forest national parks wilderness areas basically are already protected there can be drilling and stuff like that and mineral exploration but they can't be surface developed and you shared a good answer and that's from I'm protecting from fragmentation and I, I think I'm much I'm comfortable with that thinking and that the fragmentation can deal with land as well as water because if my water right is fragmented and so half of it has to go piped over to Denver and the other half I can use on this hay meadow, that doesn't work. So it's a fragmentation of not only land and water. So I, I'm... Liking the thinking of of 30 by 30 fragmentation issue, I think back to protecting land, we have to figure out a way to compensate, and that means dollars, in private landowners' hands for what they're providing to society, whether that's um, habitat for antelope they may not have the pressure of a golf course on their land but they are providing wildlife habitat on their private lands and how can we figure out the value of that and talk to go to that landowner and say you know if you don't develop you're doing this for wildlife you're doing this for the for the public
1: Putting a dollar value on the conservation measures, right. on what, what right. is what is the, the the value of preserving that land for wildlife in some right. working slash natural state? I mean, bo- both of those coexisting?
2: Yes. Yeah. And it doesn't mean he can't quit growing weed on there. It just means that there won't be houses out there under a conservation easement.
1: You spend a fair amount of time in Denver talking to folks out there. You've spent some time in, in D.C. What do you think the biggest misconceptions are for folks in the city or folks in Washington about the reality of agricultural life and the reality of ranching today?
2: I, again, we are poor messengers, ranchers. But I I keep hearing get concerned about kind of the attack on beef. And we you know, the feedlot business is not pretty, but it started because the government paid farmers to grow fence, fence road or fence row crops. People couldn't eat all that, so they had to start feeding it to cows. Cows made, because they started eating that, made really tasty beef. American consumer got real comfortable with uh, feedlot beef. But these cows here are eating something that people can't use. And they're taking a product, grass, making it into protein that can be useful. And we have to work harder on that message And, you know, the grass-fed beef thing is interesting but challenging for us.
1: Uh, From a marketing perspective? From
2: a marketing perspective and from a quality perspective. Because the problem is, if we were to do grass-fed beef, it's more inconsistent than what we go through the typical uh, beef operation, uh, feedlot operation. And so our product would be inconsistent so the the buyer the purchaser would come in and get a different steak every time just because of the, of the inconsistency of of grass-fed beef
1: so there's a bit of expectation resetting there yes yes you know
2: they don't know how to cook it anymore so it's it's a challenge we do we sell several animals a year to locally and it's grass fed and they love it but it's not something I want to grow uh, it's just too much work and it's, it's too inconsistent the other problem we have is local processors they're just not available they're inconsistent too so you know I don't know I, th- I think we're taking this grass and making a useful protein from it that i don't think people want to go out here and graze
1: well then i i, I think we should probably wrap up with a question that you are probably as well qualified to ask as anybody uh how do you properly cook a steak <laughs> you buy fetcher beef yes. and you throw it on the grill
2: <laughs> you may have a chance to do that
1: today <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, and, and so your answer is the grill is, is is always the right answer for, for a good quality steak. Yes. Yeah. High, high and never more than medium, medium rare.
2: Yeah. Okay. Jeez.
1: Uh, Jay Fetcher, I, I really appreciate all of the time, uh, all of the, the thought you put into your operation and your land and your approach to nature and really appreciate you sharing uh, your perspective with us here today.
2: Oh, my gosh. this is, It's such a treat to share. And you guys always make me think. And uh, um, that's critical for us. Mm-hmm. So it's—it's um, it's, you need to come back right. when, we without will. the microphone.
1: Without the microphones next time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
0: Here's your quick dose of good news. A black-footed ferret, one of the rarest mammals in North America, wandered into a garage in Pueblo, Colorado recently, surprising the homeowner who found it and coaxed it into a box. The story gets a little less exciting when you learn that Colorado's Wildlife Department has been reintroducing the ferrets into a gopher colony on a nearby ranch. The person who found the ferret called Animal Control, and officers were able to identify it as one of the animals recently released at the ranch. Wildlife officials said they had no idea why the ferret left the colony, but they were happy it was healthy when it turned up. They released it back at the ranch with the other ferrets, where it will hopefully remain.
1: Well, that does it for this episode of The Landscape. Thanks again to Jay Fetcher for his hospitality and that conversation. I certainly have a much better appreciation for the challenges that small cattle operators face today. And I know, as we talk about climate change, the impact of beef in particular is in the spotlight. You could hear Jay's awareness of that, too. So beyond saying the obvious, all things in moderation, including burgers, I will finish up here by pointing out that the only way we are going to get to 30 by 30 is with the help of folks like Jay. So we are going to keep talking about conservation easements and how voluntary conservation measures are going to have to play a role over the next decade in addressing the climate and biodiversity crises.
0: As always, send us your feedback to podcast at westernpriorities.org, especially if you have ideas for future episodes. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us right now. We'll be back next week with a look at more of our Road to 30 postcards. Until then, I'm Kate Gretzinger.
1: And I'm Erin Weiss, and thank you for listening.